Hey, good morning, Emmanuel family. Welcome to worship today. If you're part of the online community, welcome as well. Today, I'm going to begin a new series of messages entitled, You Asked For It. Way back in February, we sent out a congregational survey, and we asked you what topics you would like to have preached on, to hear a message on. And you responded, uh, many, 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 I don't know, 100 people, a couple hundred people, I'm really not sure. But many of you responded and said, here's what we would like to hear a message on. So there were many topics, but we narrowed them down to eight. And these eight, 80% of you asked for this topic. And here are the topics. Why does scripture occasionally contradict itself? That's what I'm going to be speaking on in just a few minutes. Why don't I hear God's voice more? How can I be courageous when all hope is lost? How do I restore broken relationships? Racism in the church. To those who have never encountered Jesus, do they go to heaven? And the second coming of Jesus. Now, there's one other that I'm not going to preach on but we're going to do something different. Eight out of 10 of you asked to hear a message of what does the Bible say about homosexuality and the LGBT plus community? And so to answer that question, rather than to preach one message, here's what Pastor Andrea, our next generation pastor, and I are going to do this fall. This fall on Wednesday nights, six Wednesday nights, Pastor Andrea and I are going to teach a class called Grace and Truth. And for six weeks, we'll be looking at what the Bible has to say about homosexuality and the LGBT plus community. And what's our response? How, how, how do we respond to this issue? Okay, you'll have opportunity to sign up. It's open for everybody. So please, if this is a topic that's deeply meaningful to you, some of you have children or grandchildren or cousins who are identifying um, with a particular gender or wrestling through their own sexuality, this is a great topic. And this is a great opportunity to hear what the Bible has to say about that. So this morning, I want to talk to you about why do scriptures occasionally contradict themselves? Well, I actually think this raises a deeper question, and here's what I think the deeper question is. Can I trust the Bible to be authentic, true, and reliable when I read things that are contrary to God's truth or character? Come on, let's just be honest. How many of you read some things in the Old Testament that you're like, whoa, what is that about? There was an early church father called Marcion who actually created this idea that there was two gods, one God of the Old Testament, one God of the New Testament. That was heresy. That's not true. But as Marcion read the Old Testament, he'd just scratch his head and say, that just feels like a totally different God than the New Testament. How are we supposed to interpret the Old Testament? What are we supposed to take literally and what are we supposed to take figuratively? Whenever I come across scripture passages that are contradictory or seemingly contradictory, I ask myself certain questions. 
And so today, this is kind of like a deeply personal message to me. And so I just want to throw out to you questions that I ask myself when I come across Bible verses that I don't understand or that are seemingly contradictory. So let's just jump right into it. Question number one, are there other verses that can help me clear up the contradiction? One of the great things that you and I can do is when we read a Bible verse that we don't understand or it seems contradictory, that we should try to seek out other Bible verses to help us to understand to fill in those gaps. So for example, let's look at 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 8. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. Okay, that's pretty matter of fact. 2 Chronicles 36.9, a parallel passage of scripture, Jehoiachin was eight years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem three months and 10 days. There's two contradictions in these parallel passages, one from Kings and one from Chronicles. One says that Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem for three months. The other says that he was eight years old when he became king and reigned in Jerusalem three months and 10 days. Well, there's two contradictions. One's a minor, one's a major. The first is the minor of one says he reigned for three months. The other says he reigned for three months and 10 days. What's that about? There's an easy answer to this. Have you ever gone to Costco and purchased something that was $88.69, but then you came home and told your wife it was $85? or $90, you round it up or you round it down. It's not to say that you're just using your personality. That's an easy contradiction. So the writer of 2 Kings just rounded it down. He reigned for three months. But there's another contradiction. Do you see it? It's up on the screen, right? Okay. Uh, Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king. Jehoiachin was eight years old when he became king. Well, how can you become king at eight and 18 at the same time? It's a contradiction. There are two ways to address this contradiction. The first is really simple, and that is scribal error. Do you ever read the New Testament and there's a common phrase that comes out, the scribes the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law. You ever heard that phrase before? The scribes were a certain group of people that copied books. So there was no printing presses back in Jesus' day. There was no computer. There's no internet. And so if you wanted to get a book, you'd have a scribe that would have a completed book on this side, and then he'd have a blank book on this side, and the scribe would have his finger over here, and the scribe would be like, okay, Jehoiachin, Jehoiachin was eight years old, was eight years, oh, oh, my eyes got all watery, and I thought I put a one in front of the eight, but I didn't. It's called a scribal error. Now, every Bible scholar in the world, including the most conservative, fundamentalist Bible scholar, everybody acknowledges scribal errors. In other words, they're human errors. Now, like 99.9% 
of books being transferred are just totally accurate. But every once in a while, somebody missed a period. Somebody missed a comma. Somebody missed a letter or a number. Somebody wrote a P where it should have been a Q. Or the person reading was like, is that a P or a Q? The little loop? Or did it loop that way? And then it has to get transferred and somebody just makes a decision and says, I think it's a P. But maybe it was really a Q. Now here's what you need to know about scribal errors. Scribal errors never change the meaning of the text they're just minor errors so that's one way to solve the issue of the contradiction it was just a scribal error it should have been 18 or 8 a scribe put a 1 in front of the 8 or didn't and you're kind of left with we'll never know but here's another way that you can look at that scripture maybe it's both stop it mark you're messing with my brain. Nobody can become king at 8 and 18 at the same time. Sure they can. Have you ever heard something called co-regency? Compare scripture to scripture. Listen to this scripture from 2 Chronicles 26, 21. So King Uzziah had leprosy until the day that he died. He lived in isolation in a separate house. For he was excluded from the temple of the Lord. He, his son, Jotham, was put in charge of the royal palace and he governed the people of the land. Because of King Uzziah's leprosy, he created a co-regency. He was still king, but his son became king and they ruled together. King Uzziah was in isolation. King Jotham ruled the kingdom, but you had two kings at the same time. This happened on our district, by the way. Our district, we're part of the Church of the Nazarene, which is a collection of 55 churches in the Philadelphia region. There was a guy that pastored a church for many years, and then his wife got a call to pastor, and so she became co-pastor of that church. So they co-pastored together. He retired and she became the pastor, the sole pastor. So here's what easily could have happened. Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin's father, could have made his son co-regent at age eight, but when Jehoiakim, the king, died, Jehoiachin became soul king at age 18. Not a contradiction at all. It's kind of what they did back then on occasion. Number two, this is the second question I ask myself. What is the context of the verse, the purpose of the book of uh, a, a particular book of the Bible, and what would it have meant in the original language in the original culture to the people that these words were written to. Did you know that every book in the Bible has a purpose? Genesis is the book of beginnings. Revelation is the book of endings. How convenient that one starts the Bible and the other ends the Bible, right? So every book of the Bible has a purpose. And every verse has a text, a context to it.
So the Bible is a compilation of 66 books written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years periods of time, a 1,500-year period of time, and the people who wrote the Bible, these 40 people who wrote the Bible, they were of different eras, and they were of different cultures, and they were of different languages. To make things more complicated, there are many different literary genres in the Bible. For example, there is wisdom literature. Wisdom literature is, is Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, there's a lot of poetry in the Bible, a lot of songs, a lot of hymns. Most of them are found in Psalms. Most of the Psalms, the, the Old Testament Psalms are actually the song book of Israel. You know how, remember the old hymnals, right? If you were in church 30 years ago, everybody had a hymnal. The Psalms were the hymnal of ancient Israel. There's historical books like Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. Then there's also prophetic books. There's major prophets and minor prophets. You know, the major prophets is Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. The minor prophets were Hosea and Amos and Zechariah, okay? And then there's the letters or epistles. Epistles is simply a fancy word for letters. And you have the letters of Paul, you have the letters of Peter, you have the letters of, you know, James. And then, of course, there's apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature, primarily it's Daniel and Revelation. Now, Here's the thing that will help you. Each literary genre, whether it's poetry, historical books, whatever, each one has their own rules of interpretation for them. So for example, apocalyptic literature is purposely symbolic and many parts should not be taken literally. Additionally, the Bible also contains different writing styles and uses different literary devices. What are liter literary devices? Like parables and hyperbole and riddles and monologues and dialogues. What, you read, the, you read the book of Job and you'll see all these monologues that Job is just kind of spouting off. And then you'll see a lot of dialogue. Most of Job is a dialogue between he and his three friends. Now here's the point. The context of the verse, the meaning of the words in their original language, and the purpose of each book, the cultural customs of that time period, the genre, the literary devices, all are helpful to understand in trying to interpret Scripture positively. So, within my questions, I just want to give you a couple thoughts here. Now, over these next few minutes, I'm going to give you a couple thoughts that will clear up 95% of all contradictions in the Bible. You ready? Here they are. Did you know that words can have multiple meanings based on context? Same word, different meaning. Well, that'll blow your mind. James 1.13, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does God tempt any man. Genesis 22.1, and it came to pass after these things that God tempted Abraham. What are we supposed to do with that? There's an easy solution. Did you know that the, in the original language of Greek and Hebrew, the word for temptation and test are the same exact word? The only thing that separates them is context. 
Now, that may seem confusing to you unless you realize our own language issues. I love my wife. I love my house. I love good food. I love going to the shore. I love a good book. And I love shoes. <laughs> Same word. It has to be different meanings. So what's the difference between a test and a temptation? Here it is. A temptation is from the devil, and it is designed to make you fail and fall. Its design is to lure you away from God's best. So whenever you feel tempted to do something wrong, that's not God. That's the devil. However, on the other hand, a test is from God, and it is designed to strengthen you. It's an opportunity for you to succeed and to be strengthened, and God puts us to the test, much like a drill sergeant on occasion will put his crew, his group of recruits, to a 30-mile run. The 30-mile run in boot camp is not meant to destroy you. It's meant to build up your body so that you can endure the test. And the purpose of boot camp is to shape you and to become a soldier that has great strength and endurance so you can succeed and fulfill your mission. Do you see the difference between the two? One's designed to make you fail. The other is designed to make you stronger. Another thought. Different biblical books have different purposes and sometimes offer conflicting messages in order to develop deeper truths. Okay, I don't even know what that means. Sure, you know it. Let's pick wisdom literature. Did you know that wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, you're supposed to read them in that order? Did you know that? You're not supposed to read Job first. It'll confuse you about the nature of God. You're supposed to read Proverbs first, then Ecclesiastes, and then Job. Here's why. The purpose of Proverbs is to teach you basic wisdom of life. Basically, Proverbs is a lot of if-then. Well, you know, if you live your life this way, then you'll get that. So if you live your life in obedience to God, then you'll live a blessed life. If you don't live your life in obedience to God, you won't live a blessed life. If you work really hard in life, you're going to succeed. If you don't work hard in life and you're lazy and a sluggard, like the word sluggard is used like 50 different times in Proverbs. I don't know, the, the writer of Proverbs had a thing against lazy people, okay? But if you're a lazy person, then you won't succeed. Now, the purpose of Proverbs is to give generalized truth about what happens most of the time. But here's the thing about Proverbs you need to know. Proverbs, by its very nature, are not meant to be taken as absolute 100% guarantees. You remember Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. There's lots of Christians that have, that have leaned on the Lord and said, Lord, you promised me that my kid, we raised him going to Sunday school and going to church, and he's walked away from you or she's walked away from you. You promised me that you would bring this child back. I'm not saying you shouldn't be praying for your children. All I'm saying is there is a general nature to life that when you're a kid, 
you have a tendency to go after your own path, but the older you get, the more you swing around and go, mom and dad weren't so stupid after all. They had a lot of wisdom there. You may have walked away from God for 10, 20, 30 years, but as you get older, people soften and they begin to say, there's a, I, I do believe that there's a God now. I do believe that God is interested in my life. Do you see what I'm saying? But it's not a 100% guarantee. How many of you know people who have been raised in the church, but they've walked away from the Lord, and to this day, they haven't come back to the Lord? It's not a guarantee. The nature of Proverbs is general basic wisdom. Now, then you read Ecclesiastes. You know what Ecclesiastes says? Proverbs is right most of the time, but sometimes it isn't. If you read Ecclesiastes through, here's what you'll discover. Good people don't always win out. Living a life of integrity doesn't always pay off on this side of heaven. You know why? Because we live in a broken down world. Some of you are working so hard at your work and you're like straight as an arrow. I mean, you, you come 15 minutes early, you leave 15 minutes late, you... you, you you do your job with integrity, but you have a crummy boss that doesn't recognize all the time and effort that you put in, and you're not being financially compensated to the level that you should be, and you're not being appreciated to the level that you should be. And you, you know what? You ought to spend some time in Ecclesiastes. Because Ecclesiastes says, I know. It's terrible, isn't it? Doesn't mean that God's not good. It doesn't mean that God's not watching over you. It does mean it's not the end of your story. Even if you die and never get the rewards on this side of heaven that you're owed, you're going to get the rewards on that side. And Ecclesiastes is about seeing the bigger picture. That generally life works this way, but we all know exceptions. Ecclesiastes is the exceptions book in wisdom literature, and then we should read Job because Job is actually the example of Ecclesiastes. Job lives by Proverbs until his life gets crazy. And then he's living in Ecclesiastes. And the problem with Job's three friends are that they can't get out of Proverbs. Because they're forever telling Job, well, God is righteous. So if you're having all kinds of problems in your life, buddy, it's because you've sinned. They're living in Proverbs. And God is stretching them to say, not so fast. Because sometimes good people do die young. And the bigger picture of Job always swings back around to the fact that Job goes through this horrible season of life, but guess what? In the end, God blesses him double for his trouble. And the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the last chapter, you've got to go to Ecclesiastes 12, the last chapter, the last couple verses of Ecclesiastes is, and this is the end, fear God. Not fear like I'm scared to death of God. Reverence God, and it'll all work out in the end. That's what wisdom literature is about. So here, here's the bottom line. Proverbs is the foundation of wisdom. Ecclesiastes is wisdom 2.0. And Job is the example of wisdom 2.0. 
If you know that, you won't be confused when you get into Ecclesiastes and think the guy just needs to be on Prozac. You know what I'm saying? He's having a bad day. No, there, there's a reason what he's doing, why he's doing it. Okay, the point is this. Context and purpose matters. And when we know them, most of what seemed like contradictions passed away. Okay, one more thing about understanding context and understanding literary genre and, and literary devices. Understand the usage of different styles and literary devices. So just one example, hyperbole. Everybody goes to this passage, so I decided I'd go to it too because it's the easiest. Matthew 5, 29. So Jesus says, so if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Okay, what's going on here? Jesus is not speaking literally. He's speaking through hyperbole. What is hyperbole? Hyperbole is a, is a purposeful exaggeration with a little bit of humor and sarcasm to drive home a deeper point. Nobody takes this scripture literally, nor should it be taken literally. Because everybody knows that blind people can still lust. What Jesus is really trying to say is, do whatever you have to do to keep yourself from sinning. Take off an app on your phone if that causes you to go places you shouldn't go. Put any kind of software you should put on your computer to make sure that even if you're tempted and try to go there, you can't go there. Put the lock on, get somebody to put a password and a lock on your TV so you can't go to certain shows at three o'clock in the morning when you can't sleep and your defenses are down. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not about the eyes. It's about your heart. Some passages of scripture are meant to be taken literally while others are meant to be taken figuratively. How many of you have ever gotten bogged down in Exodus with all of the rules and the laws? There's some crazy laws in there. There's one law that says if you have a rebellious, lazy son, bring him to the town square so that he may be stoned. Now, you may feel that way. But you shouldn't do that. You know what I'm saying? There are certain laws that no longer apply to us because we're on this side of Calvary. Not all. Ten Commandments still in play. But now we live under grace. Because why? Because Jesus fulfilled the law when he came. Okay, last thought. Are my expectations realistic when I read and study the Bible? Do I expect people who lived thousands of years ago to speak, think, and write the way I do today? That's a great question. A lot of confusion about Bible verses are rooted in culture and language. For example, every culture uses certain idioms. You know what an idiom is? It's words that have figurative meaning. 
For example, I'm under the weather. Or, you better pick up the pace. What, what does that mean? Picking up the pace. Is there something laying around called pace? Do we pick it up? Or, man, everybody was at the party yesterday. Was everybody really at the party? I mean, every single person in the universe, were they really at your party? I was starving after my workout. Were you really starving? It's an idiom. Now, here's my question to you. Are you okay when the Bible does the same thing? Are you okay when Bible authors use idioms of the day that make no sense to you and me today, but it made perfect sense to them back then? Which brings me to the purpose of the Bible. What is the purpose of the Bible? The purpose of the Bible is to point you and me to a loving God who wants to have a relationship with us through his son, Jesus Christ. And in that sense, the Bible is perfect. It's infallible. It's inerrant. Because from Genesis to Revelation, it points us to Jesus Christ. Do you remember that story on that first resurrection day when Jesus shows up with two disciples on the road to Emmaus? And Acts tells us that Jesus went back into the Old Testament and re-explained all the scriptures to them of how all the Old Testament scriptures point to him. Wouldn't you have loved to have been part of that conversation? Genesis to Revelation, the purpose is this, to point us to a loving God who wants a relationship with us through Jesus Christ, okay? Second purpose. The purpose of the Bible is to give you and I wisdom to live a godly life today in the 21st century by helping us to see how God gave his people wisdom back in their century. The Bible is not a science book. The Bible doesn't even promise to answer every single question you have. That'll blow your mind. The Bible is not going to answer the question, should I watch this show or that show on Netflix? You know what the Bible will do? The Bible will give you wisdom to discern which show you ought to watch on Netflix. But it's not going to give you the answer. It's going to give you wisdom through God's Holy Spirit. Okay, so here's how I'd like to end this message. I feel like some of you are thinking, you know, I, I don't know. I feel like some of you are thinking, this is the most boring message I've ever listened to because it didn't really speak to like my heartfelt need today. Maybe you came in and you're really struggling. We've had a couple people who have had deaths recently, just this week in their family. And this probably isn't the message for you because I've been kind of talking about like Bible interpretation. But here's how I'd like to land this message. You can trust God and his word. Just because you can't figure out what certain passages mean doesn't nullify the fact that there is a God who loves you, who pursues you with intensity, 
who wants you to have a relationship with Jesus and through his Holy Spirit will guide you perfectly throughout the course of your life. There's many things in the Bible that you don't understand. There's many things in the Bible that I don't understand. But as C.S. Lewis used to say, it's not those verses that I don't understand. It's the verses I do understand that bother me. You know what I'm saying? One day, we're going to get to heaven, and you're going to pull out your list of Bible verses. Well, why did it say that? And then you'll realize, actually, none of that really mattered. Because God's going to have a perfect answer, and you'll be like, I allowed myself to, to wrestle over this for 30 years, and God, in one sentence, cleared it up. Here's my goal today. My goal has been to release you from some of the burdens that you've been carrying that have been niggling in the back of your mind about, can I really trust God in his word? I want to say to you, yes, you can. And this really matters. Do you know that every verse I've used today came out of the atheist.org website? So I went to the atheist.org website this week and I read an article from the president of the Atheist Society in America on why you can't trust the Bible. And every scripture that he pulled out, I decided to use in this message. And my heart mourned that some people can't read the Bible with imagination. They can only read the Bible flatly. I think there's a whole bunch of people that would love to have a relationship with God, but they're hung up on certain passages of Scripture. If this message today has helped you, or if you want to pass it on, help some of your friends to unlock certain areas of your heart to let it down so that you can actually trust a God who loves you, who has been faithful to you all these years, who intentionally pursues you, then this message has been worth it. So let me close with just a couple things. One is, would you consider reading the Bible in a year if you've never done that before? Just take the Bible and read it. I'm not even saying Genesis to Revelation. I'm just saying find a Bible reading plan and say to yourself, I'm going to read the Bible in a whole year. And here's the reason why I'm asking you to do that. Here's what you'll find. These 66 books written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years, when you read it, you'll, you'll discover something. There is remarkable consistency in the Bible. Yes, there are confusing passages, but there's a generally remarkable consistency. I think you should find that out for yourself. Second, I think you should use a lots of Bible resources. Um, I, a go-to one for me is BibleProject.com. Everybody should go to BibleProject.com. If there's a passage of Scripture you don't understand, they have something to address it. Three, I think you should pray I pray, I ask God to open my eyes so that I can see his word as he intends me to see it. I think you should become part of a Bible study. Nobody was meant to study the Bible by themselves. It's iron sharpens iron. One of the best ways to study the Bible is to get in a Bible study and to hear different perspectives and to get different people. Oh, I never thought about that before. So this fall, we're offering several different options. And I encourage you to join one of those Bible studies.
lastly, this topic is so important that um, I'm going to be here at the church tonight in room 131, 132, that's right off of the lobby. And I also provided a Zoom link. It's on a QR code in your worship folder. If you just go to the QR code, it'll take you to the Zoom link. So whether you want to join me in person or whether you want to join me through a Zoom link, we're going to spend an hour, 6 o'clock to 7 o'clock, and I want you to bring your most difficult Bible passages that have hung you up, that in the back of your mind you're like, wow, how can that be? And we'll wrestle through them together. I can't promise you I'll give you like an answer. I'm not like the Bible answer man. I'm just saying... I promise you we'll make a serious attempt and we can apply the things that we talked about today so that you can take it home and go, oh, I'm, I'm able to see that scripture a little bit better and understand it. Now here's kind of something a little funny. Right before the message, our communications director, Josh Yoder, came up to me and said, Mark, if you go on the Zoom link, it says it starts at 10 p.m. I created the Zoom link and the default is 10 p.m., and I never changed it to 6. That's my, my bad. It's my fault. I'll be on Zoom at 6 o'clock. It doesn't matter what the time says. If I'm on it at 6 o'clock, the Zoom link will show up. Okay? I'm going to leave you with one last scripture. Jeremiah 15, 16. When your words came... I ate them up. They were my joy and my heart's delight. That's what God wants you to experience when you read his word. Sometimes it can be confusing. Sometimes it can be frustrating. Don't worry about the verses you don't understand. Worry about the verses you do understand. But when you read God's word, God wants you to be like Jeremiah, eating them up, a delight, a joy to you, tasting like honey, sweet to the taste. Holy Spirit, we're on a journey these next seven weeks. You asked for it. And so that means that a lot of people within this church family have questions about Scripture. Through your spirit today, I pray that you've unlocked some of the things that have frozen us up through the years to say, hmm, maybe I have a different perspective on that. Help us to trust you with our whole heart and trust your word with our whole heart as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand, please?